Hey gang, I'm back. And today we're going to talk about Larry Solom's response to the critical legal theorists. And in particular, his response to the charge that, well, legal rules don't really determine anything at all. Everything is up for grabs. And because everything's up for grabs, well, law is normally used by the powerful to lock in place their preferences, to dominate the powerless. All right, now how is he going to do this? Well, overall, it, it's a bit like Dworkin in his piece Model of Rules, and that's penning down with theses, your opposition, saying what it is they're committed to, and then suggesting what's wrong with these various theses. Solom identifies two major theses and then a set of techniques that critical legal theorists use. The first is the indeterminacy thesis, and that's the idea that legal rules don't provide any meaningful constraints on judicial decisions law, you know, what you read in the statutes, uh, what you read in cases as principles, like none of that, none of that really provides a meaningful constraint. Judges can end up just doing whatever they want to do. The second is the mystification thesis. And that's that the way that judges write, the way we speak about law, legal discourse, both conceals and reinforces relations of domination between the powerful and the powerless and in fact makes those relations seem natural. This is kind of a critique we've seen before, right? The effect of law and its rhetoric is just to kind of normalize the fact that the powerful get all the goodies and the powerless don't. And it makes it seem like that's really natural. Now, the techniques that the crits draw on are, well, some of the same ones that the realists drew on, right? Noticing that statutory interpretation contains both equal and opposite canons that can be set against one another observing within law circularity, noting the open texture of statutory language. Okay, so if legal rules are indeterminate and the function of legal discourse is basically to mystify these hierarchies of domination, then how does this actually work? What is the process here of domination through those two things, through mystification and indeterminacy? Solom says the crits have three ideas here. One is the idea of legitimation that the law accomplishes this domination by piggybacking on tradition or charisma. The point is that legal discourse of the right kind can just make a rule seem legitimate through public rituals that carry an air of authority or symbolism associating the legal rules with something that we hold dear. Okay, second way is uh, dissimulation. It's concealing the bias or tilt of rules toward the powerful And it conceals that through false social meanings, like, you know, images put forth like a religious ideology. So think of the idea of freedom, referring to certain kinds of heroes, calling forth the image of the person who pulled him or herself up by their bootstraps, calling forth the image of the welfare queen, you know, these kind of tropes. So dissimulation can help us kind of accept rules as responding to these categories of social meaning or images that we accept. Okay, third route to domination is reification. And here we see something very much like the legal realists observed. That is the representation of what is really just an abstract idea as something which is material, something with substance, making what is really just kind of a contingent idea about things seem inevitable or natural. This is transcendental nonsense, really. The idea of the corporation is the real thing. And and then we kind of naturally slide into granting that thing rights and thinking that it's located somewhere. 
Well, law does that a lot, is the claim. All right. Now, the promotion of the idea that law is determinate, you know, that judges are, as Justice Roberts said at his confirmation hearing, like umpires calling balls and strikes and not batting. The belief that law has that kind of determinacy, that that we can call a dispute as being a ball or a strike, that's a kind of mystification, the crits say. It's a kind of statement that law is not politics, and so there's nothing to disagree with here. The big claim of the crits, as Solom describes it, is that law is in fact made by judges who are socialized into whatever it is judges do, and who naturally pattern their decisions in favor of the dominant. And there's no need to coordinate amongst themselves or even to have any particular attitude toward this myth of law as not being politics. It just kind of happens because they're socialized into it the way all the rest of us are. Okay, so let's talk indeterminacy. And here Solom identifies two kinds of indeterminacy. I know, that's a lot of what we do in this class, right? Is people identifying different kinds of things that we thought maybe there was only one of. And Solom is really good at this. This is part of what this piece kind of excels at, is uh, pulling apart what seems to be one thing into multiple categories and then analyzing it individually. The strong thesis, the strong indeterminacy thesis, is that in every single case, you can derive every single result. In other words, there are no easy cases. Now, that's a pretty strong claim, And as Solom observes, maybe you could rebut that strong claim just by showing, you know what, there are some easy cases. What are some easy cases? Well, suppose you're out walking your dog and someone says, hey, you're committing an antitrust violation. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm just walking my dog. Well, Solom says maybe that's an easy case. It's obvious that whatever it is you were doing, you were not acting, you know, with a monopoly to restrain trade. What is it that's easy about these cases? Well, the strong indeterminacy thesis holder might say, you know what, if we look hard enough, we'll find out that these easy cases that you cite actually could be hard. And I can show that by pointing to arguments that are of a kind that practitioners would accept. Here, Solom distinguishes, again, between determinate, indeterminate, and underdeterminate. What? I know what's the difference. Obviously, if a case is determinate, it means that legal rules control the result. There is no wiggle room. The judge has one right answer. If a case is indeterminate, it means that legal rules do not constrain the outcome in any way, and so we could reach any result. But a legal rule applied to a case may be underdeterminate, meaning that there's possibly more than one result, and so some other ground than that rule itself is needed to resolve the case whether it's the judge's own preferences or or something else, right? But law itself, or at least that rule, doesn't determine it. But not every possible result is justified by the legal rule. Hard cases, Solem says, need only be underdeterminate. And further, there are easy cases. Our non-antitrust violating dog walker may be such an easy case. And easy, from the point of view of the internal skeptic, in the sense that under anybody's kind of internal point of view in the system, thinking back to Hart, they would see these cases as easy. There's just not any room. We might go further, though. A crit may take on what Solom describes as the externally skeptical view. This view kind of looks at the whole enterprise of law, not from within the system itself, but from outside, and says, wait a minute, 
you're trying to kind of pin down the outcomes of these cases based on language? That's just not possible. Language itself makes determinate rules impossible. And here we meet again our old friend, the question of whether you have to stop at a red light or what to do with a rule that says that motor vehicles have to stop at a red light. Does it resolve the case where, I don't know, you and your Honda Civic just rolled right on through the intersection? How can we be sure that that law applies to your particular instance? The law speaks in general terms. But is a Honda Civic a motor vehicle? Well, you know, Solomon would certainly say, as a practical matter, yes, everybody knows that. But is it conceivable that maybe it doesn't apply to that Honda Civic on that day? Maybe there are people so skeptical about language that they say that, okay, you may think as a practical matter that language covers Honda Civics because everybody just knows that, but the language itself could always admit exceptions. You're providing more than just the language to decide that case. You're providing your sense of what's included in those categories. There's something else going on. But Solem says, let's be practical here. You can be a rule skeptic. You can say down could always mean up and that language is never truly determinate. But he says that's kind of like worrying about being a brain in a vat. Is reality kind of what we think it is every day? Or, you know, is it more like being in the Matrix where we're all hooked up to these wires and machines and the, the reality that we see in front of us is not the real reality? He says, yeah, you could worry about that, but it's kind of useless and it's impractical. So let's just focus on what we all know. There's a related but kind of different critique here that the indeterminacy in our language and the indeterminacy of legal rules kind of bubbles up from a much more basic contradiction that we have in ourselves. This is the contradiction between freedom from social harm and the freedom of the self, right? The freedom to act together and the freedom to be on our own. Contradictions like that one may not be the only one, but that may be a core one for law. Contradictions like that manifest in ambiguous language or language which doesn't totally determine things or which may even be radically indeterminate. So think about like the principle of equal protection or congressional power. Think about the kinds of conflicts people have over those bits of law, over those words. Contained within those words are the seeds of continuing conflict about them. And those conflicts just kind of replicate that core contradiction the freedom to be on our own, and the freedom to act together. Solem says, though, that that this only points to the fact that people can engage in theoretical disagreement about law, that law can contain, as Dworkin says, competition among principles. You know, so there may be, as I look at our law, a couple of different principles that come out of statutes and other legal sources, and those may not be in perfect harmony, and I may have to weigh them. But dealing with competition among principles doesn't render our law wholly indeterminate. It may mean that there are hard cases, but it doesn't rule out that there could be easy cases. Okay, one more defense of strong indeterminacy. And here, this is um, what Solem calls the epiphenomenalist view. All right, that's maybe a complicated word, but but here's what the gist is. It's that easy cases, so-called easy cases, are not easy because of rules themselves. It's not because the rules are determinate that the cases are easy, but because the content of the rule and the outcome of the case are both determined by something else, something prior. So the reason that we say that a particular case is easy 
is because something within us, something prior to legal rules, tells us that can only come out one way. And it's that very same thing which led us to maybe craft the rule in a particular way. Well, Solom says that if this something else causes judges to shape the doctrine in a particular way, and then judges end up following that doctrine, well, then that's not indeterminacy at all. It's just telling us that people have reasons for things, and they have reasons to craft doctrine in a particular way, and they have reasons to apply that doctrine in a particular way. But even if you think that the something else is kind of independently leading us to decide cases without reference to doctrine, you would need an account, he says, of how these kind of mysterious underlying forces actually lead to judges producing results, irrespective of doctrine. And he finds the crits wanting here. He doesn't see an account, at least a sensible account, that could explain that, as well as the standard account, the slightly more determinate account, which is that judges look at doctrine, they look at statutes, and they do their best to piece them together. Okay, that's strong indeterminacy. And what we've seen here is Solem kind of figuring out the different ways that you might be a strong indeterminatist and combating each of those with his arguments. But what if we weaken that a little bit? What if we're not strongly indeterminate? Well, how might we weaken that? Solem cites two ways. First, maybe there really are easy cases. Maybe there are a bunch of easy cases. But it's really the hard cases that we care about. Maybe it's the important cases that we care about. And for important cases, the law doesn't give us any help. The law only really constrains us in cases that are easy anyway. In important cases, the law is no help at all. Well, Solom notes that maybe this is a tautology. The upshot is you need a definition of important cases for this critique of legal rules to have any meaning at all. Cases are important because they're uncertain. Well, your whole thesis is that they're uncertain because they're important. So that's just totally circular. You need some idea of what it is that makes a case important, which is distinct from its relative determinacy. Okay. The second kind of weakening of the indeterminacy thesis is what Solom calls the modally weakened thesis. And here the claim is, Not that you can't predict what the law is going to be, but that rules don't produce logically necessary consequences. In other words, there may be easy cases where we all say, oh, we know what the court's going to do. We know how this is going to come out, right? But you can't say that that knowledge or that that knowledge of how it's going to happen or that prediction about how it's going to happen is because of the legal rules. One way of looking at constraint is to see the way that a rule dictates or chooses among possible future worlds. And Solom notes, (laughs) as is a theme here, four different ways of looking at possible worlds. Logically possible worlds, physically possible worlds, these are, you know, the worlds that might happen, uh, you know, within the bounds of science, socially possible worlds, and practically possible worlds. So... Okay, so let's take this example that he uses uh, where the Constitution says the president has to be over the age of 35. Is it possible that a 34-year-old could be legally recognized as the president? Well, logically maybe, because maybe there's an interpretation of 35, then we can look at history, we, and the Constitution doesn't contain within it explicitly the right interpretive technique for us to use. It seems to leave that somewhat open. And so maybe when we look at history and other things and and other sections of the Constitution, we decide that it uses the number 35, but really that's a stand-in for 
maturity generally. And this is a mature 34-year-old. Her inauguration is consistent with the Constitution. Solom acknowledges that might be logically possible. You can imagine a world in which that is the view that people take. But he says, is that really practically possible? Just because one could come up with that kind of analysis doesn't mean that it seems practically possible in our world. Now, if you agree with Solom's critique of indeterminacy, you might wonder, why is this so important to the crits? And Solom makes these kinds of arguments. First, legal realism's refutation of formalism required examples of underdeterminacy. Like, that was the big move, that was the big success of legal realism, to show that what judges were doing when they were striking down this progressive legislation wasn't required by some unmovable law. It was choice that there were areas upon areas in which judges had the ability to choose, and in fact were choosing based on policy. So law's lack of complete determinacy was critical to the success of the legal realist movement. I guess the other thing that he mentions is that, you know, the crits are drawn from law teachers, right? And law profs overwhelmingly use the case method to teach. The kinds of cases we use to teach have a sample bias. They're usually kind of hard cases. They're cases in which there's some choice. And so because of that selection bias when choosing materials and availability bias when reviewing case law, because we're typically reviewing appellate decisions, we might think that cases are harder than they are and that legal rules resolve less than they really do. The third is more instrumental, and that's that indeterminacy, stating that there's radical indeterminacy in the law, makes it easier to suggest radical reforms. If it's all a matter of political choice, so if every umpire is really batting, then we can choose to make the law different in any area. But Solom thinks all this is a mistake, that focusing on law's indeterminacy is in fact counterproductive, even if you are seeking to take the law in a progressive direction. And that's because focusing on indeterminacy blocks what could be really good internal critiques of the law. It suggests that all law talk is really just bunk, right? That it's all made up, that it's all politics. Well, if it's all bunk and politics, you can't respond to someone's legal analysis by suggesting that analysis could be improved or is mistaken. But also, you don't know how this is going to go, right? So if you quote-unquote wake judges up to the radical choices in front of them, if you make them believe that they can do anything in a case and it's as good as quote-unquote following the law, well, then maybe they'll choose to act according to their preferences. What makes you think those preferences will be progressive or compassionate? They might be authoritarian. And finally, another contradiction. If the doctrine is freezing us in place, if we all have these frozen minds, doesn't that mean doctrine is constraining us? Wasn't the whole problem with the Lochner case that it did in fact determine results? Hmm, a lot to think about there. I've got one more for you to think about, though. This goes back to the example about playing a game of Monopoly. We all get together, we break out a game of Monopoly, of course it's got some instructions that go with it, and we decide we're going to play a game. Now, the way I've always played, let's suppose, is that whenever anybody has to pay one of those taxes or a fine, you put that money that they pay under free parking. And when you land on free parking, you get all the money that's been put there. Right? So it's a little adds a little gambling element to the whole thing. Another deviation from the typical rules of Monopoly is playing without the auction rule. Right? That's the rule that if you land on a space and you decide not to buy the property, then it's supposed to go up for auction. And a lot of people don't play that way. 
Anyway, under either of these, right, we can look in the rule book and we can find maybe what people would say is the real rule. But is it? So if we decide to play, we've made no conscious decision. But you land on luxury tax and you have to pay a fine. And I say, yeah, you got to put that money under free parking. And you say, really? And we, we may have some argument about that. What makes one of us right? What is it that causes us to decide either we're going to put that money under free parking and put it up for grabs to a person who lands there, or we're not going to do that? In other words, what is the law? Now, one person might point to that instruction book and say, look, it doesn't say anything about that in here. Free parking is supposed to be a space with no consequence. It doesn't say anything about that. How do we know who's right? Does the fact that the rule book contains those words determine what happens? And in fact, we can go further. What if we're playing with a two or three-year-old or just someone who sometimes acts like a two or three-year-old and they just decide, well, they roll a 11 and they just decide to move 12 spaces or to go around the board two or three times? It appears to violate the rules, but does it? We have really two questions here. What are the rules of our game? And then if we can identify those things, do they determine the results of our disputes about the game? All right, that's enough for now.